I'm here with Ari Pesco. Ari is the director of the Electricity Law Initiative at the Harvard Law School, which is in turn part of their environmental and energy law program. He has a JD from Harvard, and he also has uh, degrees in electrical engineering and business from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and from my from my personal point of view, Ari is a, a Twitter public servant. He provides a lot of public goods on Twitter for the rest of us involved in energy issues, keeps us educated about current events, which we all appreciate. Welcome, Ari. Thanks for having me, David. So what I'd like to talk to you about today um, are the, the subset of your activities at the Electricity Law Initiative that deal with uh, the sort of ongoing conflicts between uh, FERC and ISOs and RTOs on the one hand and states on the other, jurisdictional fights, some of which have to do with tensions between uh, what the RTOs and FERC think are sort of reliability risks associated with the green transition, and some of them also just have to, have to do with turf wars between states and, and the federal government over jurisdiction. And I'd like to start out by just having, you in a general way, for a, a, an audience that's not exclusively lawyers, explain basically what these uh, ongoing fights are about. So we have interstate power markets that are run by regional transmission organizations or RTOs, and all the rules of the market are regulated by FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And FERC operates under the Federal Power Act, uh, which is a law passed by Congress in 1935. Uh, and the key provisions haven't changed much, and it's premised on a model of the industry that doesn't really apply anymore. So when the law was passed, we had vertically integrated utilities that owned uh, generation facilities and were basically selling power to their own consumers. And FERC regulated a very small piece of that, which is transfers from utility to utility. These are wholesale sales. Um, and so states really have been the primary regulators of the electricity industry for more than a century. But about 20 years ago, states decided to break up these utilities and um, have utilities focus just on delivery and have independent power producers uh, sell power through these wholesale markets. At the same time, states still wanted to have control over the resource mix that provides power. So the tension comes from this new regulatory structure where states are not directly uh, regulating these power generators, but at the same time wants to have influence over them and uses policies directed at their utilities to influence what's happening at the wholesale market. So you have FERC regulating, uh, uh, setting just and reasonable rates, uh, again, based on this 80-year-old uh, congressional mandate, and you have states interested in particular outcomes, wanting wind, solar, offshore wind, nuclear, um, and there's been conflicts uh, between uh, what states want and what what FERC is 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 doing. Yeah, and some of those are uh, coming to a head in, lately in connection with state efforts to keep nuclear power plants, uh, old nuclear power plants, on the system. Can you explain that subset of this of this issue as well? Sure. So nuclear power is our, our biggest source of carbon-free power in the country, and a number of these plants um, sell power in these wholesale markets, again, operated by these RTOs, regulated by FERC, and these markets set prices 
based on economic principles that try to uh, find the least cost mix of resources that are going to maintain reliability. Um, for a number of reasons, primarily the low price of natural gas, wholesale prices have been low, uh, and many of the nuclear power plants uh, are not profitable, or at least uh, not as profitable as they'd like to be, uh, with low wholesale power prices. So a couple of states decided that they wanted to make sure that these nuclear plants didn't go offline in the face of these low wholesale prices, and they uh, basically selected certain plants in their states uh, that we're going to receive these zero emission credits, which uh, rewarded these plants for producing emission-free power. And these were priced roughly at $17 a megawatt hour. So in New York and Illinois, uh, certain nuclear plants were able to sell power in the wholesale market. And then for every megawatt hour they generated, they would also get these zero emission credits uh, courtesy of the state. So the legal issue was, were the states actually changing the wholesale price of power? And that's important because only FERC has authority from Congress to regulate wholesale power rates. So the legal issue was, um, you know, is this $17 megawatt hour credit actually changing the price of wholesale power? And if it was, then the state law would have been preempted uh, and it would have been, you know, struck down. Um, and if it wasn't, then the states could uh, continue with this program and keep these nuclear plants uh, uh, operating profitably. Um, and what ended up happening in, in two different cases uh, in Illinois and in New York uh, was that uh, the courts uh, said the states were essentially regulating energy production, not energy sales. Um, and and the, the programs are legal and continue to operate. And, and since then, uh, New Jersey has enacted a program as well, and there's currently ongoing discussions in Pennsylvania and Ohio about whether or not they will also uh, enact similar programs. Um, what, what happens when a state like Ohio, say, for example, has been considering a similar kind of support program, but, but a program that would include fossil fuel plants in the set of uh, recipients of these sorts of credits. How do you approach that issue? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, what we argued in the brief um, is that states have authority to set up these energy credit programs. And the model for the ZEC program is the Renewable Portfolio Standard, which is something that, about you know, uh, 29 states have enacted in the past 20 years, and that tells the utility that you have to procure a certain amount uh, from uh, renewable sources, particularly wind and solar. And the way these, these programs work is that the utilities demonstrate their compliance by buying renewable energy credits, which is this uh, you know, state-created commodity uh, that signifies that a megawatt a megawatt hour of energy was generated by a particular type of, of renewable generator. And so utilities have been buying these credits, you know, for 20 years to demonstrate compliance with these renewable portfolio programs and the ZEC programs built on, on this model. And we argue that there's no, there are no legally meaningful differences between a renewable portfolio standard um, and a ZEC program. Um, and that states have authority to require their utilities to purchase these credits. So, so far, no state has extended that model to a coal plant, for example, to keep an uneconomic coal plant uh, online. Um, but our legal argument, uh, you know, isn't predicated on the type of resource. It's, it's predicated on the, um, 
you know, form of the state program. So if a, if a, if a state did create a coal credit program, um, you know, I think for the most part, um, you know, the argument that we filed in these ZEC cases would still hold up and argue that there is state authority under the Federal Power Act to do something like that. There could be other legal reasons um, why a state might be precluded from enacting a coal program. Um, but, you know, I think the, the salient point from my perspective is that, you know, as I mentioned, there have been about 30 states that have, that have enacted clean energy programs and so far zero states that have enacted dirty energy programs. And so I'm comfortable putting forward this argument that in theory allows a state to support coal because so far no state has decided to actually do that. So this also brings brings up a, another element of these ZEC programs. It, it, they probably weren't enacted solely because the nuclear plant is providing zero emission power, but also because it's a, it's a traditionally dispatchable resource. How do you feel about that issue? It's an interesting jurisdictional issue as to what role states have, if any, in maintaining reliability and resource adequacy at the bulk power level. And so I, I make this distinction between reliability, which is um, really sort of the moment-to-moment uh, balancing of the grid and making sure that the system is stable, and then resource adequacy, which is more of a long-term issue, which is making sure there's enough capacity on the system to meet uh, peak demand. And reliability as a matter of, of law passed by Congress is something that FERC has jurisdiction over. And that's something that the, that, that's taken care of both through markets, which attempt to uh, create prices that align with physical power flows on the system to maintain reliability. And it's also something that FERC does through uh, reliability rules. Uh, FERC has oversight over the North American Electric Reliability Council, or NERC, uh, which sets reliability standards that all uh, entities in the power sector have to meet. So FERC clearly has authority for that sort of moment-to-moment operational reliability. The other issue, though, is resource adequacy. And here it's a bit hazier. Um, FERC regulates what are called capacity markets in, in some regions of the country, um, and these are RTO-run markets that, that are designed to ensure that there's sufficient amount of resources on the system. But at the same time, the Federal Power Act gives states' authority over generation facilities themselves, and it also reserves authority to states over uh, to regulate uh, utility portfolios. That is, uh, states are allowed to dictate to utilities which resources they have to buy from. And so there's... So, you know, you can imagine, a, again, going back to your example of what happens if a state decides it wants utilities to buy from a coal plant, and what if the state's rationale for doing so is to maintain resource adequacy? Would that be an appropriate legal goal for states to pursue, or would that be preempted in Ohio, for example, because utilities there participate in the RTO capacity construct? So that question hasn't yet come up uh before a court. Um, so I think it would be uh, an interesting case, um, you know, to what extent do states have authority to uh, intervene on this on this issue? You know, again, when it comes to this sort of reliability issue, I think clearly, though, that that's that's on FERC's side of the ledger. And I think you had a conversation on your podcast recently with Bill Hogan, which I listened to and will link uh, the idea of, of trying to ensure or provide sufficient incentives 
in a competitive market to invest in uh, capacity so that you have capacity that meets your reserve target is a, is a difficult and ongoing challenge ever since we restructured these markets. It's a particular challenge here in Texas right now. But in the, in the Northeast, uh, in PJM and in New England and New York, they have capacity markets, as you mentioned, uh, that try to provide some of that incentive. And I know that you've been involved in some of the um, uh, cases or uh, proceedings uh, in connection with the controversies in the PJM and New England capacity markets that I think stem, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they sort of uh, stem from this concern about um, about reliability and perhaps it's also a reaction to the Trump administration's uh, ongoing focus on reliability and trying to tie traditionally dispatchable and fossil resources with a, a more reliable system. Are you involved in those proceedings? Have you been participating in them or, or just commenting? I have filed comments uh, at FERC in the PJM proceeding on this issue, and I see it more about economics than reliability. Obviously, there's a connection between the two, but um, you know, as I mentioned, wholesale power prices have been very low due predominantly to low natural gas prices. And as energy prices are lower, generators have been earning an increasing percentage of their total revenues from these RTO capacity constructs, and particularly in PJM, where when the capacity, you know, the PJM wholesale market has been open since the late 90s, it didn't have a capacity construct until 2007, I believe. And, you know, when it first started out, generators were earning, you know, one to five percent of their total revenue from capacity. And now it's closer to about a third of their total revenue. And so, you know, they have a, the, the, you know, traditional coal and natural gas generators that are earning the significant chunk of their revenue from capacity markets are clearly incentivized to uh, push for rules that are going to keep those rates high. And they see state programs as, um, you know, because like, for example, a nuclear plant that earns money through ZEX uh, doesn't have to be quite as concerned about the revenue it's earning from the capacity market. And so they have an incentive to bid low into the market just so they can earn something. And that, in theory, lowers the market price and that hurts those fossil generators. So I see this as really about... Um, you know, traditional fossil generators trying to put forward a set of rules that exclude these state-sponsored resources um, because that will uh, maintain higher prices for them and also create additional opportunities for new capacity, new natural gas fire generators to come online. Can you see a, a sort of trajectory in which spot prices in the energy market keep going down and eventually approaching zero as zero marginal cost resources comprise a larger and larger percentage of the, the system so that really everybody, including renewable producers, is, is really going to have to depend upon some sort of capital cost reimbursement mechanism in a future in which most of our generation is renewable. Is that is that Do you think about that in terms of how you approach these problems, or is that all premature because because renewables still comprise such a small percentage of the system. I think that's a bit premature, particularly in PJM, um, where renewables are uh, relatively small still. Um, and, but I think, you know, that, that's a good vision, um, and I'd like to have a market system that can get to that vision and not fight against it. Um, and, you know, so in, in an ideal world, you would have the market 
rules, um, you know, facilitating moving in that direction. And I think what the fossil generators want to do in PJM is essentially create a walled garden capacity market just for them, where only they're allowed to participate, where the nuclear resources who are supported by state policies and all the renewable generators who are selling those renewable energy credits uh, are excluded from the capacity market uh, capacity construct. So, you know, in an ideal world, you would have um, PJM put in place a system that starts to move in the direction that an increasing number of states are headed, uh, which is a lower carbon mix. You know, alternative that you touched on earlier, um, you know, is the Texas model where there just there just is no capacity market at all. And so what you have to do is put in place various energy market rules that will create higher prices in the energy markets that will ensure that we have a sufficient generating capacity that's economic and will stay online. Um, and in fact, the you know, you also mentioned my conversation recently with Bill Hogan and you know, we, we focused in that conversation on um, sort of, you know, PJM looking to copy aspects of the Texas model. PJM's not ready to get rid of the capacity market anytime soon, but to do things that are going to um, increase revenues in the energy and the reserves market. And that might actually have the effect of de-emphasizing uh, capacity market revenues. And so maybe, you know, that's one way to diffuse some of this tension is if we can't eliminate the capacity market entirely, maybe we can uh, decrease its importance um, and then we won't, we'll have fewer of these, of these battles down the line. This, this problem of sort of ensuring reliability without overbuilding um, in competitive markets has been sort of a constant problem ever since restructuring. And there's lots of different ways of approaching it. We had a conversation with Frank Wolak about the Texas market in which he, you know, urged putting the onus on retailers to essentially secure reserves themselves, uh, create a forward market for reserves at, with retailers as buyers. Um, and, and that may be the sort of thing, that may be the direction that uh, Bill Hogan wants to go as well. Um, let me just ask one other question. So does all this suggest that if for states that want to retain more control over these resource mix issues and resource adequacy issues, that a single state RTO is, is better than a, a multi-state RTO? Yeah, you know, I think that would be an unfortunate uh, consequence if, if as a result of rule changes in, in PJM's capacity market, we had some states exiting the system so that they could have more control. You know, ho- hopefully that's not where we're headed. You know, obviously there are there are benefits of these regional markets, particularly um, when you have, you know, states that um, – you know, need their neighbors if they're going to move towards a low carbon mix. Most of these states don't have sufficient amount of resources on their own uh, uh, to get to a lower carbon system, and they need to be, uh, you know, using the the benefits of of regional balancing uh, to get there. Um, but yeah, you know, we have New York and California that have, um, you know, our FERC regulated markets, and but they're you know single state uh, markets. Um, and, you know, they haven't had the same sort of challenges that PJM and ISO New England have in terms of this uh, jurisdictional conflict. So thanks a lot for talking to us, Ari. Sure. My pleasure, David.